This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookends. This week on Bookends, Moran talks with poet Maggie Rainey-Smith about her first collection of poetry, and I have a new crime novel from Scottish-born Liam McBanney. It's a sequel to the award-winning The Quaker, and again set in Glasgow in the 1970s, full of the rich and violent history of this time. You may never have experienced a bomb blast, but as soon as you hear one, you know what it is. McCormick and Nickel had been driving down Maryhill Road. The sound was so loud and overpowering that McCormick wrenched the wheel and righted it just in time to evade an oncoming bus. Jesus, fuck, he said softly. Nickel said nothing. They both knew what it was. It couldn't have been anything else. When they turned into Garriach Road, they could see the dust and smoke hanging whitely in the black sky above the rooftops. They came through the roundabout and turned the corner. It was like driving onto a battlefield. There were bodies in the road. Figures stumbled blindly in the headlights, arms up as though to ward off blows. Some were running, swerving round the velox as McCormick swung tight into the curb. Nickel grabbed the radio to call it in as McCormick tumbled out into the red glare and smoke. Already you could hear the throb of sirens. Liam McElbenny reading from his new book, The Heretic. The Heretic is a sequel to The Quaker, which um, won the uh, Scottish Crime Book of the Year in 2018. The Quaker and now the sequel. It's um, an amazing book. I thought The Quaker was amazing. Liam, I'm talking to Liam by phone in Dunedin. Uh, Liam, but this is just as outstanding. I can't distinguish which I like better. I have to go back and read The Quaker again, I think. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's very nice to hear, and thanks very much for having me on the programme. Well, it's, um, I better tell some of people who don't know about you. I can't believe they don't, but you were born in Scotland and studied at the universities of Glasgow and Oxford, and uh, your crime novel, Where the Dead Men Go, when you came to New Zealand, was you won the 2014 Naomash Award, and we were so pleased to have you now living in Dunedin, where you're currently Stuart Professor of Scottish Studies at the University of Otago. So welcome to you um, with your new book. How is important, uh, important it is for you to give us not only a crime novel, but to actually... Um, add to the city, Glasgow, that you love and know so well, and give me a really rich history at the same time as I'm reading about the crime. Well, I think that's the aim, Ruth, as well as giving you the, hopefully, all the things you expect from a crime novel in terms of the suspense and excitement and sensation and so on. But at the same time, you're trying to give some sense of, I suppose, the social history of the city you're writing about. And that's, that's quite a familiar thing in crime fiction. The old cliche that's very often trotted out about crime fiction is that the setting becomes a character. If you think of something like Edinburgh in Ian Rankin's Rebus novels, it's, it's very 
very, it's very much part of the attraction of those books. So that, that was part of what I was aiming to do with The Heretic. The Heretic's set in 1975, over about um, a month or so, um, and the uh, Quaker was set in the 1960s. So what's happening in Belfast in 1975? Did you choose that for any particular reason? Well, um, yes, I mean, you're right that the book does uh, touch... Uh, to some extent, on the troubles that are unfolding across the water in, in Belfast, although it's, of course, mainly focused on Glasgow. Um, I mean, dealing with that period was not really something that I uh, sort of planned out a great deal in advance, Ruth, to be honest. I wrote the first book, The Quaker, set in 1969 in Glasgow, largely because it's a lightly fictionalised account of a series of real-life murders that took place in the city at that time, the Bible John killings. Um, and I, I wrote The Quaker very much as a, a standalone book. I had no idea that I would write a sequel until my editor at HarperCollins, a woman called Julia Wisdom, said, this campus is actually quite interesting, my, my protagonist, Duncan McCormick. You might think about bringing this guy back for a sequel. So... Being the dutiful fellow that I am, that's it. that's exactly what I did. <laughs> so I hadn't really planned in advance to to be setting a series of books in this time period. It's just sort of worked out that way. Well, I'm glad you did, and um, I'm glad that you um, brought back uh, Detective Inspector um, uh, Duncan McCormick because. Uh, I like that. I like his character very much. In fact, you're very good on character. We they seem to leap off the page, and uh, in that reading you did, we also got an atmospheric piece at the beginning of that chapter when there was one of the main events that happened: the bomb going outside um, the barracks pub, um, and um, you you build it up to um, create that atmosphere. With what your characters are doing, they're very well linked. And as you said, it's, um, the um, setting is another character. So he's come back from London um, after a time, and then um, he's back in Scotland. But he doesn't get on with um, his um, superior, his boss, uh, very well at all. And Indeed. that's um, Harrow, um, Alan Haddo, the Detective Chief Inspector, um, Duncan's um, McCormick's um, in charge of the Serious Crime Squad. And uh, in that crime squad, we particularly hear about Ian Shand and Liz Nicol and uh, um, what was the other one's name that I always forget? Goldie. <laughs> um, yes, Goldie, who, who was the sort of sidekick in the, in the Quaker, that's right. Pardon? Goldie, who, who was essentially the, the sidekick character, the sort of offsider of yes. Duncan McCormick yes. in the first book. Yeah. I was interested in a character, particularly of Liz Nicol, I suppose, being a female. Um, and uh, is it important to... There seemed to be always a woman, not usually a token woman. She certainly wasn't, isn't. But um, how important is that for you, to have yes, well, that, that's, uh, absolutely, Ruth. That's one of the 
uh, I suppose, the differences between the heretic and the Quaker. As while I was writing the Quaker, I assumed mistakenly, as it turned out, that the personnel of CID in Glasgow in the late 1960s would be exclusively male. Um, but I subsequently uh, got in touch with a wonderful woman called Nanette Pollock, who's one of the, the people that helped me with the background research to the heretic. And Nanette Pollock was a young uh, police officer in Glasgow in the, the 60s and started working as a detective in the CID and then rose to actually lead the CID in the city of Glasgow and later Strathclyde Police. So the character of Liz Nicholl is uh, in, in large part based on the, the memories and anecdotes and the material that I derived from Nanette Pollock. And, and I think when you're dealing with uh, what is essentially, I suppose, a historical period, a historical novel, it's extremely useful to have people that you can approach in that way to provide the, the research that you need to write the book. I mean, there's only so much you can do by looking at old newspapers and so on. It's really important, I think, to have actual individuals who can respond to your questions as they arise. You do a prologue in this book. Um, why are prologues seem to be becoming more important, not only in crime fiction, but in ordinary fiction? Um, do you like to book prologues? I can't remember where you've got them in all the books I've read of yours. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've written four books and I've got four prologues, Ruth, so that probably answers, answers that question. Yes, I do like prologues. They tend to be um, one of the defining features of crime fiction. You find that a lot of crime novels use prologues. And I think they're just a useful way to plunge the reader immediately into some of the most dramatic action of the novel. And then after the prologue, which is usually very short, usually only three or four pages, you can sort of take a breath and then start to sort of build things up slowly. So you get a kind of slow burn opening, but you've also had this very dramatic prologue before it. So it seems to work quite well, I think, to set the reader up for what's going to happen in the, the body of the novel. Well, in this one, um, there's um, an inferno in the stairwell of the Tradeston tenements, and uh, Denise, a mother with a small child, a small daughter, was um, trapped with Kirsty on the fourth floor. And um, I found that um, really I was into the action. <laughs> and thinking, oh, God, did they get out? Did they not? What happened? And um, so immediately you've got the reader wanting to turn the pages. Well, that's the idea, Ruth, yes, that yes. You, you begin with something you know, inherently dramatic and immediately, immediately the reader is, is wondering what will happen and, and how will this unfold. And then I suppose the idea is that for the rest of the book, they're expecting that uh, dramatic incident to be explained, which, of course, happens in, in due course. And that also, that prologue also, I suppose, relates to the social history of the city at the time, too. That, you know, Glasgow was notorious. I mean, it was known as Tinderbox City. It was notorious for the house fires that would rip through these old tenements. Um, so it's very much uh, the, the, kind of, the kind of happening 
the kind of tragedy that would befall people in that particular city. Well, this is superb storytelling, um, Liam. It's just uh, wonderful so eye for character development. And uh, how much has changed when I thought when I finished the book and I was really interested in those unsent letters, writing letters but not sending them, but giving mm. more information to your reader in a very clever way. And there's four of those, and you actually finish the book with one of those. Um, I can't go into any detail because that would be telling the reader too much. You have to read it. Yep. But um, I just um, am really impressed with your writing. It just gets better and better. So thank well, you for good. writing The Heretic, and if you haven't read The Quaker, I would go back to The Quaker. Not necessarily, you don't need to, because this one stands alone, but um, it made me think I wanted to read The Quaker um, more briefly, and which I did, to remind myself, and uh, I just thought The Heretic was um, superb. So thank you for writing The Heretic. It's by Liam McIlvenny, and it's published by HarperCollins. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Ode to the Conray Heater. Frosty lawns and frozen puddles. Smoke from the open fire. Feeding coal and kindling to the old coal range. Coats on the beds for weight and warmth. Hotties between our thighs. So imagine our delight when the wood veneer heater arrived to glow in the front room on the square of Autumn Axminster. Suitable for sitting on, sitting near or sitting by in the sitting room. The three settings, high, low, medium. It glowed in three shades of red. We were reluctant to go to bed. We stayed and prayed instead the god of home heating. There are tales of nylons melting, scorched underpants and petticoats on fire, but these are apocryphal, mere suburban legends. That was Maggie Rainey-Smith reading from her new collection, her first collection of poetry entitled Formica. The title poem poem for Micah was long listed for the 2019 Fish Poetry Prize, which was judged by Billy Collins. Maggie is not just a poet, she's a novelist, short story writer, essayist, and book reviewer. Maggie, what a delightful collection this is. It's, uh, it's not just 50s nostalgia, but a real look at a, at a, a life. And it's, many of these poems are very personal, aren't they? Yes, yes, they are, Moran. And and I I look back when I first got into writing, which was late in life, and I remember being at Wellington Library and being perplexed that poetry was in the non-fiction non-fiction section. And I thought, well, that's odd, poetry fiction. But now I realise. <laughs> having produced what is really a memoir, that these poems are really, really my life. So they are, um, I guess I understand now, the non-fiction category. Yeah, yeah. Um, with, with 
with my fiction, I mean always as a part of yourself. Um, but my poems have come from my personal experience. Yes. So I'm yes. So I'm guessing that a number of these poems have been written over the years. Um, there's some very recent ones too, I know. But um, what was it like going back and choosing the poems from all those that you've written? Ah, that's a good question. I, I think when I got into writing late in life, I always imagined I would be a poet rather than a novelist. And so um, I've always been writing poems. And somehow when I looked at what I had and um, I talked with the Cuba Press about a collection, it, it felt that it was a journey from the 50s to now, kind of a story of a of a. Of a of a woman from her childhood to being a grandmother, and and so so I just chose the poems that fitted. Uh, I, I guess too there were griefs from the sixties that I needed to express because in those times we didn't, and I suppose I felt this was a way in which I could explore and express publicly the griefs that I had that we just sort of I suppose it was a generation where you kind of tucked them away. And put them in your yeah, back pocket I, and got on, got on with life. Yeah. yeah. And poetry is a wonderful uh, vehicle for expressing that. You, you know, you talk about the loss of your brother from suicide. Clearly, your sister was fragile and and took some time to to emerge. You liken yes, her to yes. a magnolia bud. There was the terrible um, experiences that your father had as a prisoner of war, which manifested the, the the sorrow, the grief, the anger manifested itself on Anzac Day. All those things. Yes, there yes. In the poem. It, was, it was truly a post-war childhood, but filled with so much uh, goodness as well. There was a lot of love, and I suppose um, some of the poems are dark, but. Um, as a family, we always had a great deal of love, so I, I, I treasure that, and I'm very close to my sister. Uh, it's just, I guess, the 50s were a strange time of perceived innocence, so I feel quite fortunate in a way that I had such a lovely childhood, but there was a lot of this, um, I suppose, sadness and grief that came from uh, a father who was, I guess, suffering from what we now call post-traumatic stress, but we didn't have a name for it. And I guess, too, uh, one of my poems, Nawa too, explores just the stigma around um, psychiatric care uh, and, and hospitals like that were closed down. But in many ways, they were kind of a haven. My dad would actually volunteer to go there. So it's a mix yeah. of good and bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, indeed. And, um, you know, amongst, as you said, amongst the darkness, there was so much light and joy. And um, you remember a Catholic upbringing, um, what it meant to be a girl in those days, dealing with yes, yes, dealing with all the, all the sort of um, guilt and fear of, of embarking into relationships and oh, absolutely. a lot of yes. laughter as well. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the, one of the ones I I really enjoyed was the one about marching girls, because oh, the last great. lines 
Yes, the last lines. I, you know, I was a, I was a private school girl, and I remember being very uh, envious of marching girls. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But Maureen, it was very funny when my novel about turns came out. I was fated by book clubs locally, and they were wonderful middle class women. And of course, I'm a middle class woman myself. But there was this thing they were fascinated by the book. But they were also still holding this almost like, oh golly, a marching girl. Do you know what I mean? It was it was really interesting for me. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess we always think that New Zealand didn't have a class divide. And I guess in retrospect, I recognise being being Catholic and a marching girl <laughs> and working in the post office. You know, I was really in another another milieu. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think we always have had a class system. Well, you know, you can't say unfortunately it happened. It's probably still there. Um, It depends where you bang up against it. Yes, and I also um, feel... Sorry, yeah. No, carry on. (laughs) I was going to say I feel very, very lucky because although we were probably what might be perceived not wealthy... By today's standards, we were incredibly well off. If, you know, we were very well looked after by the state. If my father was away in psychiatric care, we were totally looked after by the state. My mother wasn't working because she was unwell. So, you know, it, it, quite different for people, I think, today in New Zealand. It's not quite as as easy. Mm. Yes, and your poems show, uh, you know, a great degree of security and stability. And yeah. Yeah, and the, and the and optimism really. Yes, yes, I, I, I think I'm an incredibly optimistic person. So I think it must come from, from, from yeah, the way in which I grew up and the era and and the freedom. I think of the freedom um, that we had. Really, we didn't. Our parents were just glad if we. I was allowed to go to the movies whether it was a hot or a cold day. You know, my friends were like, oh, no, it's a beautiful day. You should be at the beach. My parents were quite happy. If I wanted to go to the Saturday matinee, I went. Um, I think they were older parents, and I think they just, we had a lot of freedom, yeah. I think your poems will resonate a great deal with, with well, all people, but specifically, obviously, people like me, that shared that kind of upbringing and and were around in that time and, you know, are now grandmothers and yes. older parents and, you know, you, you cover all those things as well in the poems. But they're, they're lyrical, they're light, they're, they're um, not light weight, but, no, 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 but they're no. light. I what you're saying. <laughs> There's a great deal of that in them. Maggie, you came to poetry late, as you said. So what did that mean for you as a poet? poet? Had you read a lot of poetry before then? Well, the the truth is that I was always writing um, rhyming verse for friends, for for their birthdays. Um, So... uh, in my 40s, it was if someone had a, a special birthday, I would write. And it was I was quite witty and good at rhyme because my mother had always recited this sort of rhyming poetry. So it was kind of a thing that I did. And as a result of that, somehow my rhyming verse must have appealed to Greg O'Brien when they <laughs> that I applied for the 
undergraduate poetry course, which was the first one Greg did. Um, and when I got into the course, I discovered I was with published poets that really what I was writing was what was called doggerel. <laughs> but um, somehow within that, there was this ability and this, I guess, Greg saw I had potential and um, I made friends with poets and I just, yeah. And then weirdly, out of that, I became a novelist first. But but my great love is always, or desire has been to be a poet. So this is for me a thrill, this collection. And I'm really grateful to Mary McCullum and the Cuba Press for um, taking it on, believing in it. Yeah, it's a thrill. Well... <laughs> Um, it's a wonderful collection. I would recommend it to anyone to to dip into and enjoy. So let's Thank you, go Mom. out with um, you, another poem from the collection. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll read Waiting for the Bus to Come, which kind of uh, reflects what you were saying about the era we grew up in, as well, I grew up in. Waiting for the Bus to Come. It's Stuart Dawson's Corner was where I saw you, seated, all orange hyvers suiting, looking tired and holding a sandwich. Like me, you look too old to still be working. You seem weary, yet I still have a spring in my step. At least that's what I tell myself. Did I once kiss you at the cabaret down the lane by the old post office, Manor Street? Was it the Sheridan? Maybe you remember, maybe not. You're a stranger in a high-vis suit, sitting on the pavement, outside what was once a flash jewellery shop. And who knows, maybe we did once dance together at the cabaret back in the day, when Catholic girls were cock-teasers, full of false promise, testing our allure against your erections. Then moving on to the next dance partner, with whom we might exchange chaste kisses, several if you please, Flighty, bright young things, even demure. At times not knowing what we would do if the music stopped and there was just you or some other bloke or someone new who was prepared to, well, chance his arm. So it's unlikely, but not impossible, we kissed one night at the cabaret. You looked tired there on the pavement, as if waiting for a new song. I'm waiting for my bus to come. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, Maggie's you, collection. Maggie's collection is called Formica, and it's published by the Cuba Press. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM ninety six point nine.